another just asked. Yet another one. This one I'm very excited about because I'm interviewing or talking with Jennifer Senior, who was a long-time staff writer at New York Magazine, My Old Haunting Grounds, and a daily book critic for the New York Times. She's now a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she recently wrote a big profile of Steve Bannon which was, I have to say, really fascinating. I want to talk to you more about that, Jennifer. And an essay on friendship, which is an extraordinarily important subject, which is somehow always neglected, especially for those of us who are, as Jennifer puts it, in, in, in mid, midlife. Let's put it that way, midlife. I think I might be <laughs> the sort of end of midlife at this point. This year, she won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing for a 9-11 piece, What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind, which also got a National Magazine Award. Her first book is the bestseller, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. Jennifer, welcome to the Dishcast. It's lovely to have you. Oh, it's so lovely to do this. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> oh, you're, you're very welcome. Big subscriber. Tell me, we yeah. always start with, I always, oh, thank you. Subscriber, there, we always have a spot, soft spot for subscribers. Thank you for doing that. Jennifer, I ask this question to everyone because it's, it's sometimes revealing, sometimes not. So it's okay if it's either. Tell me about where you grew up and, and your childhood and and how you kind of came to be a writer the way you, you, you are. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this might fall into the category of not so revealing. Or maybe it is. It, it's, it's kind of a cliche. Uh, you know that moment in Annie Hall where, which maybe I'm not allowed to cite anymore, but there it is. Where, 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 yeah, where Woody Allen puts his hands over this woman's head and says, mm, let me guess, socialist work camps as a kid, blah, blah, blah. He just rattles off her, her whole background and sort of gets it right. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit predictable in this way. My, my folks were, you know, working class Jewish kids, one from Rockaway and one from Flatbush. And they met at Brooklyn College. And I started my life in Brooklyn. And then they were strivers. My, my dad went to Brooklyn Law. He made a little bit of money and they went out to the suburbs and I was raised in Chappaqua. So I'm like a suburban girl. I mean, I'm just like a girl from Westchester. I mean, I, I, there's like, oh, what do you add to that? It's, it's, it's painfully boring. So, and how I got into writing, I mean, yeah, it's like, where, where do you go from there? You know, I, 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 I can were you a writer as a kid? Did you did you yes. did you like writing when I, you were a kid? I wrote. Oh yes, I liked writing a lot when I was a kid, and also I had that thing as a kid, which I think novelists describe a little bit more than maybe magazine or news people do, which is where you narrate in your head things that are going on. You actually, in real time, as you're living things, start composing paragraphs about that. I, I you know, about what's going on. I had that in my teens and right into my mid twenties. Maybe until I got a proper writing job that allowed me, you know, to do the as as my profession rather. The, you know, I mean, you start in journalism and you're getting people coffee. Unless you're you and you just come out of the gate editing the New Republic, the rest of us got people coffee. And so, you know, but but I, I definitely had that and you know scribbled books as a kid. I mean, my parents found it perplexing they were not writers, but it, the, the, it was definitely something that I seemed to be doing out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I find this happening to me too. I will be just walking around and I will I will just hear sentences in my head. Yep. Things I've been thinking about that I somehow have to articulate in my brain, as it were. And a lot of the time I really don't want that to happen. I I I kind of like to be without words. 
sometimes. I just like to clear my head, but they always crowd in. They, they're they always articulating what I see in front of me in my head. Does that, does that happen to you? Yes. And they count, I think, as intrusive thoughts if you're just trying to soak in nature or something. You're not, but they're useful, I think, in moments when you want to have some distance or, or even just to make life more interesting. You know, I don't mind that. And I think it's nice to have sort of a running voice in your head. I get nervous when mine dies down, actually, you know? When you're writing an essay, and this is definitely what happens to me, I'm, I'm thinking about various ideas or themes or, or, and then I'll just come up with sentences in my head that might express that. And every now and again, I'll come up with a phrase that really strikes me as, oh, that, that's kind of useful. That's kind of, that's better than the other stuff. Yep. And, and that's how it works. But it's, I I find it oppressive. I'll be honest with you. I, I really, I really uh, vibe with the Hamlet words, words, words. It's like, yep. If only I could live without words. I think it's part of my attraction to sex because it's, it's one of the few places where you can really interact with another person without ever using words. I mean, you can use words, but it's primarily a physical visual interaction, not a verbal one. I'm the same way. And I feel like it's finally at long last the off switch. <laughs> has gone, you know, has been flipped. I, I think one of the funny questions to think about when you're doing all that obsessive narrating and you're coming up with these sentences and then you sometimes write them now down or you stop yourself and you're, you dictate them into like a note file on your iPhone or whatever you're doing. How many of them do you actually use? I mean, I think it's probably a 50-50 for me. 50% of them might make it into something I write. Well, I have this practice of of writing and then getting stoned, and, <laughs> right, which, that's is right, a, I forgot. <laughs> which is a, which is another way of kind of just letting go of the words for a little bit. And right. and sometimes though, when I'm stoned, I think of things to write down. I write them down in this little notebook called Ideas. And I would say only about thirty percent of them really work. In but reality. that's stoned Andrew, oh, right? That's stoned. That's stoned Andrew? me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Sometimes they're really good when stoned, and but a lot of the time they they're really though? bad. How are they different? I mean, there must be a difference between stoned you and non-stoned you. I think I'm more. I think the thing is that you, you, I'm actually more self-critical when I'm stoned, in as much as I have a little bit more perspective on my own work, and I don't have my ego as bound up with it. Sometimes you'll write a sentence and just be attached to it somehow because it's yours, even though it's kind of crap. And the weed kind of dislodges my ego a little bit to see that it's actually not very good. So you're um, not self-critical. And that's actually. that. But that means you're not self-critical. Uh, Think about it. It means that you're actually. In other words, I need to. Yeah. You're I, right. I, I mean, I, it I means see. that I need to get stoned to stop being so self. Or that when I'm when I'm not stoned, I'm 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 too easily enchanted with my own language, as it were. Right. No, I get it. You're more precious and you're more tied to it because right, your your ego or your superego is in full flower. But I'm I think that's really if I weren't so cognitively compromised, I think I'd get stoned a lot more for that reason. It's lovely <laughs> to have that inner critic desert you. It's so nice. I mean, it, it, yeah, yeah. I think alcohol did it for lots of writers. Yeah. You know, I'm I I just read this book, this little book about all the writers and artists and architects that came up to the end of the Cape historically, like from 1910 to 1960. And reading it, I mean, these are incredibly 
amazing writers, thinkers who are talking about sort of Irving Howe, Walter Gropius, the Wasn't he uh, an architect? Hans Hoffman. Yeah. He was, and he yeah. also designed everything out here. I mean, that yeah. was, this is one of the places he had a Charles Hawthorne, the painters, Eugene O'Neill, yeah. Tennessee Williams. And so far as I can tell, they were drunk basically all the time. And the level of alcohol that people used to consume, it still shocks me, really, that they were able to get any work done at all. But it, it turns out that combination of being truly unplugged and then plugging back in is kind of a useful balance it, it gives you a little escape from the mental landscape you're in and takes you somewhere else for a bit and then you come back and you see the landscape just a little little more clearly they certainly didn't think that heavy drinking was a huge impediment to creativity right i i feel like we missed the boat on that i mean we're not part of a generation that does that we're part of a generation that is just so teetotaling and, and Thoroughgoingly boring. You know, the one fact that I've retained about Walter Gropius is that Alma Mahler had an affair with him and I think walked, took long walks along the Danube with Freud to discuss his despair over this fact. So, I mean, Gropius was clearly doing something. <laughs> he got the ladies, he wrote, he drank. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And Tennessee Williams was busy picking up sailors at the local right. and fishermen at the local oh bars God. and pubs. Drinking and, uh, and writing. It all went together. Yeah. It did. I remember like I had a slight glimpse of the old days. Yeah. Because way back when I was an intern at the Daily Telegraph on the old Fleet Street, which was which which was a quite it was the model for the the the, the novel Scoop. Scoop uh, the Beast. And it was in the same building as that. And the amount of alcohol that the journalists consumed, I remember showing up once because they would roll in around 10 o'clock in the morning. Then they would start a very liquid lunch around 1130 noon. Then they would, the lunch would last for like two to three hours. It was very leisurely, gossip, argument, fun, humor, jokes, whatever. Then they would roll up in the editorial office around maybe four and they would have a discussion of what they were going to write that day in the editorial columns of the Telegraph, because I was an intern on that section. And, and then afterwards, even then, they, weren't, they would go and have another, another whiskey, another gin. And then they would write. And they'd write it between roughly about 5.30 and 7 p.m., because the deadline was 7.30. And they did this every day. And it was an absolute amazement to me. And I once asked them, how on earth do you write an editorial when you've had you know, five whiskeys today. And the answer was, oh, my dear boy, I, I couldn't possibly think of writing an editorial without drinking <laughs> five <laughs> whiskeys a day. And I don't Hitchens know. I don't think like they the were that worse writers. No, I mean, Hitchens, Hitchens modeled that. Hitchens, Hitchens kept that up, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, his, I, I, I wrote to you about him once, that he was known for both his spirited dispatches and his dispatch, no, and his dispatch of spirits, or something like that. I can't remember how I put it. But like his, his good swift, one. His, no, it was it was his swift spirited dispatches and his swift dispatch of spirits. That's what I did. I was very proud of that. I've never been able to do that flippy thing again. But he's the only one. Everyone good else one. I know. Thank you. But everyone else I know, between ten and one, if they're, I mean, if they would dare vanish for that long and they're in the business, they're going to the gym. It's so boring by comparison. It's it's the opposite. I went from that Fleet Street office to the New Republic, and it was it was it was it was like going to a yuppie gym. It really oh, was in yeah. comparison. They were incredibly teetotal. I mean, 
and very straight. Like I said, now you go to a newsroom and it's dead quiet. Right. You notice that too? Yeah, they, nobody's on their phone. Dead quiet. They never used to be. No one's no. on their phone. Or talking to each other. No. Right. No, well, it, it's some kind of encroachment. But I'm interested in the fact that no one's working the phones anymore. And I think we've lost a lot of that. I mean, whatever habits, because we're emailing or because we're tweeting or whatever, it, that loss of, even if it's not embodied contact, like in, I think having just the voice in your head matters so much. The interviews are so much better. And also having that kind of life around you in a newsroom. They were joyous places to be. I, I, I miss the office. I'm, I'm like the only person. I really, I'm a creature of the office, but I don't miss hushed offices. I don't want to go back to an office where no one talks, where it's monastic. But there was also the, the nice noise of, of typewriters, uh, oh. clickety-clack everywhere. It, it just created this nice sort of clickety-clack white noise that kind of made you a little excited about the world. I don't know. It did me. I, I just felt you were entering a different space. But, but I mean, I how much older than me are you? I, you didn't come of age with typewriters in, in offices, did you? On I did at the Daily Telegraph. It was still, it was still electric typewriters when I first get there. I promise you. Look, I am a little older than you. Thank you for bringing it up. Well, no, just, <laughs> I'm 58. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm just about caught it. Just about caught it. Oh. So I had some memory of that before we got all the silent little computers. It was so glam. I mean, there's just and no they would, glamour in our job. Yeah. No, and I mean, being a magazine writer back then, I mean, in the 80s and uh, 90s, I mean, it was a constant, you know, expense account anywhere. Uh, Cars picking you up, driving you to parties, being paid like five bucks a word by Vanity Fair. I mean, this stuff was, was obviously, it was, it was the ancien regime. It was the end of <laughs> an era. Pockets but boy, did it go out with a bang. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Pockets down to your hems. Totally. I completely remember it. I mean, I, I, I didn't ride that gravy terrain necessarily. I was at New York Magazine. But you know what? They, they paid brilliantly. They had a staff. We were paid to be magazine writers and we had health insurance. I mean, that was the good. We knew it was the good old days when we were as we were living them. That was what was painful. Yeah. That we knew we could see there was an egg timer on it. You know, we, we knew it wasn't going to last. And it didn't. It didn't. It, so yeah. what was your first writing gig? Where did you where did you start off? I got coffee from Maureen Dowd and all of the people at the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. So and I remember calling my you're, parents. You're one of the law you're one of the extremely illustrious band of people who brought coffee to Maureen Dowd over the years. She's lovely, by the way. She was incredibly nice. Oh, I know. oh yeah. I mean, of course you know. But I mean, you can always um, measure a person's character by how they treat the 22-year-olds in the office. It's it's unfailingly true, right? And I mean, my first year, I graduated, actually, it's a little more interesting than that because I graduated in a recession in 91. And my parents, who were working class kids, had no thought of ever supporting me. So I came to Washington, D.C. because City Paper said that I could write stories for them for like nothing. And I knew sign language. So I worked at Gallaudet. I, I, I worked as a teacher in the, I was a writing instructor and I was an assistant teacher. And that was how I made money. And I got clips and I sent them to the Washington Bureau. And, and it must have been sort of interesting that somebody who taught at Gallaudet was applying. And I was a clerk. And I'll never forget this. I mean, the Washington Bureau, I guess Howell Rains was still running it when I got there. 
And he kept calling me Lindsay. He had like no idea who I was. Six months of never <laughs> once getting the right name which, and asking me to like Xerox things about, you know, tennis elbow or whatever it was. I mean, it, it wasn't as bad as whatever the spy magazine story was about him <laughs> <laughs> making four clerks walk outside with potted plants and, you know, stand in fresh rain. I mean, there were all sorts of you know, <laughs> terrible stories about how it rains. God knows if half of them were apocryphal or not, but he, um, but it was, I, I got there and I did have one enduring impression, which is that I had never in my life seen such a dense collection of high achieving, unhappy people. It was a very unhappy place. And they were all famous. They were all marquee bylines. And in those days, the Washington Bureau, I think it's a little bit more relaxed now. There was a culture at the New York Times then of you absolutely didn't collaborate. There were no joint bylines. It was very unusual to see mm. two bylines on anything. So it pitted it pitted all of the writers there in the early 90s against one another in this way that I thought was fascinating because it, the Washington Post had this reputation for being this joyous, or not joyous, much happier, sane newsroom. And all you had to do was stare at the two papers side by side and see what the difference was. The, the paper had three bylines on a complicated story, not one. And so whoever got roped into feeding, you know, the material to somebody at the Times who didn't get the byline was a grouch all day. I mean, I got to watch people in their 40s get really bitter and pissed off about this stuff. And, you know, I, I got to watch people throwing staplers at each other and saying, you know, don't call the people on, in, on the fifth floor of the State Department. Those are my sources. You know, I mean, crazy things, not staplers. But, you know, I mean, it was it got much better. It did. But it was an early lesson that going to the most prestigious place was not necessarily a, a recipe for a happy life. I mean, that was a great thing to learn as a 22 year old. You know. Yeah, it is. There's a you you tend. To, uh, I think it's was it Orwell that said, "From the inside, everything looks worse. From the outside, everything looks <laughs> everything looks glamorous. From the outside, once you get there, it's kind of grim in a way, and it's a little disillusioning at times." Oh. How did you stay happy? Well, by or not going not? into the newspaper business. I mean, it, and actually, I didn't go back to the New York Times. I think the book review job was the fifth job they offered me or maybe the sixth, I wouldn't go. They kept offering me jobs. And I was like, no, nah, I'm happy here at New York Magazine. Thanks. And let me tell you, I said at least once a day when I was at New York Magazine, and this was to your earlier point, a time when we still worked the phones. So at least once a day, I'd be on the phone and I'd say, no, not the New Yorker, New York. And maybe you had that experience, you know, <laughs> over time. Yeah. Oh my God. It's, and, and you got used to it. It became a joke. You were used to working at Avis. Okay. You're the second best, whatever. It's fine. You know, but I couldn't let go of it because I was so happy. I was, I was well compensated. I adored my colleagues. We were so collaborative. If somebody was working on a story that somebody else knew something about, we would just start pulling out, you know, what, what would you call them? Little, you know, leaves of our Rolodex and helping one another. God, I'm really dating myself. But we would. And it, we, it was just this lovely, loving, nurturing kind of place. And I didn't leave until just everything, until the internet kind of ruined everything. You know, I think I, I, I had a good, <laughs> I had a good run. And then I sort of capitulated and then, I, New York Magazine had been it had gone from a weekly to a bi-weekly. All of the staff writers were sort of being shown the door, but for a handful. 
And I was, I had survived a round of cuts, but it's like being in World War One, and you're like the only guy left in the trench and you're looking to the left and the right. You're like, I'm the only one in the trench. How long can this possibly last? Am I going to even get to the next trench? So the Times called me up and said, you know, you're on the short list to replace Janet Maslin as a book critic. Did you know this? And I thought, no. And I wasn't even all that interested in it because to tell you the truth, I was force fed like a foie gras goose in that job. I had to read... I had to review three books every two weeks in that job. It was brutal. And if you do the math on that, I had a seven-year-old when I started. So if I was reviewing a book, you're reading the book, metabolizing the book, trying to think something original about the book, writing the review, and then watching it go through the copy editing snake once every four and a half days. And that includes the weekends as a mother of a seven-year-old. The whole thing was bananas. But anyway, but it was like a luxury liner was coming along and offering me this kind of fabulous kind of you can't say a life raft it was a luxury liner right like you know this way out when ma the magazine was sort of transitioning into becoming something else it's still very good but it was becoming something else they were shedding writers and so i wasn't going to have the same kind of life so i went to the times and i was a book it, it is a it it seems like an ideal job <clears throat> just read these books and, and write about you i like reading books right. uh i thought so you're too. right it becomes this becomes this baton death march in which you just have to churn it out and you know but that at the same time that is journalism i guess we do have to churn it out at some level certainly in the internet churning it out became an almost obsession churning out so much i mean if you think of a magazine i think of like the old atlantic say just to, just to take an example it would come out like once a month and there would be maybe about, you know, one big essay and a couple of other essays some reviews, but that'll be it. Totally. Hey, now something like that now puts out 150 pieces, you know, every couple of days. I mean, the sheer volume of material they produce. And part of it was incentivized by ad dollars, of course, which is less true now because it's more subscription driven. But still, the whole idea that editing is what you, is what you don't publish as much as what you do. And now, because that's what you're asking them to do, to make the selection for you, because you have a life. And, and now they just give you everything. And if you, you know asked, and, oh my God, yes. And if you asked the editors of any of the major publications exactly what percentage of the content that they publish they read, it's terrifying, right? They can't. They can't stay on top mm -hmm. of it. I mean, it's the mm -hmm. proverbial drinking out of a fire hose problem. What I found sort of frustrating about reviewing books at that pace is that books are the slow food of the publishing industry, right? I mean, they come there, you hand in your finished manuscript about a year ahead of time. They're still working on a very pleasant, human, manageable pace. And then the thought that a book critic then has to ingest this thing very quickly, something that you've devoted seven years of your life to or whatever, that I had to, and also I, I, I I bet you're not like this, but I read it almost the pace of human speech. And the other book critics don't. They read faster. And it was a real problem. And I just knew I was never going to. And also... I have always been... You're a fast reader? A slow reader. Oh, you too? No, I'm a slow reader. It oh. takes me time to read a book. I, yeah, me too. I, I need to absorb it. And I, I need to read the sentences after another. So we, I can't crash a book. Same. In a day or so. I just can't. I and I and I think you need 
set to reading, you know, you do need a little leisurely pace. It's not about producing something. It's, it's not an efficient uh, reading a book should not be a matter of efficiency is what I'm saying. I know, it's, exactly. a, it's, the, it's a category error. Exactly. No, exactly. The idea that anyone would try to devise a hack to get through a book faster is just, it's horrifying to think about. And as an author, of course, you would never want anyone doing that to something that you'd work so carefully to produce. But then readers themselves today are so overwhelmed with stuff to do, with obligations, with work. Yep. It becomes harder and harder for them to read the way that we used to read. I mean, uh, which is which is which is really, really tough going for a civilization. I mean, I should read fiction, for example, because fiction is a way of expanding your horizon and really understanding other people. And I just don't have the time to do it when I have to deal with all the nonfiction stuff as well. I know it's um, unfathomably luxurious. And also if you're watching television, it feels like a version of already that kind of thing, you know, and this is something that my old book editor said to me at one point, she, she mainly edits fiction. And she said, you know, every time I want to take a gamble on a new fiction writer, I have to bear in mind that this is competing with the crown, for instance you know, and podcasts. Yes. You know, all these things that yes. people also consider diverting and where you're inhabiting other characters and other imagined lives. And, oh, it's really terrible. It's terrible. And I... Well, I, it's, it's just that the novel has... The novel is now the, 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 binge, se the binge series on Netflix, right. if, if it's good. That's what it's become. But that means it's very visual. And it's it's... The actual ability to use words and words alone to conjure a world becomes rarer and rarer. And we just don't teach young people the skills to be able to do that. Uh, whereas for me growing up and for you growing up, it was the only thing. Right? I mean, there was the movies, but movies and then there was TV shows. But it was there wasn't this intermediate sort of novelistic uh, multiple series, multiple show binging kind of. We work about when you, when the wire came out when breaking bad happened when that whole when game of it just created a new form of novel really oh, totally and you and i were uh, so far past that i mean we were adults when peak tv happened when these kind of yeah. dickens you know like these things that could rival dickens series can i mean yeah i mean it just it's mm -hmm. not the same at all and yes i look at my son and I don't want to sound old, you know, I mean, obviously whatever he's doing is adaptive to, for his moment, I think, mm -hmm. but it is weird. I mean, getting him to, I mean, I'm, I'm at the point where I am begging him to read Stephen King. How did I get to this crazy <laughs> pass? I mean, that's it. Just Stephen King. Well, Just Stephen King is really easy to read. You know, it's right. great fun. And, you know, Oh, I'm not saying, course, I mean, yeah. Uh, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Harry Potter really was a great thing in that respect. Yeah. It really did get children and young people to read long books, which very few other people were able to do at that level of exposure and of mass reception that right. J.K. Rowling did. Well, if I, could, if I could rename myself after J.K. Rowling, I would. For that reason alone. I mean, yes. Yes. We're not allowed to anymore because it would. Oh, to, don't uh, get permanent. me started. Yes. I know. <laughs> well, let's let's not get started then. Let's. I want to talk about because this essay really struck me because it really focused on a subject I've been fascinated with, and maybe because I'm gay in part. But the notion that friendship, having friends, and sustaining friendships as 
an absolutely central part of human happiness. That, 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 that in fact, when if you read the ancient writers on this, there was no other virtue more important. I mean, Aristotle says at one point that there's no point in doing anything unless you have the ability to have your friends appreciate it, to see it, to support you, for you to do it for them. If you're doing it, if you're on an island, no one's going to read stuff, no one's going to do stuff. Why would you do it? And so he had this notion, and it was also to some, somewhat obviously affected by the, the, the role of the subordinate role of women in ancient Greece, which meant the marital relationship was much less understood to be friendship. But nonetheless, a, a, a really, it's always the thing that struck me most when I was first reading these things. Why? I haven't read any modern books about friendship. I, I don't read any philosophers that talk about the centrality of this. And yet, it's different than romantic love, obviously, although I think romantic love can become friendship. In fact, probably needs to become friendship if it's going to last. And it's not agape. It's not the Christian idea of loving everyone unconditionally, which, of course, is unachievable. It's this this middle area of achievable love that sustains itself. And your essay really spoke to how this became more apparent to you during COVID when we were all so very suddenly isolated. What, what, is that what stirred you to think about the subject? Yes, although I'd love to key off of at least one thing you said. I now have the worst mm, case middle-aged brain termites, so I'm not sure if I can remember all the things I was thinking as you were saying those wonderful things. But you said that you were responsive to it in part because, you know, maybe it's because you're gay. And I was thinking, you know, I wonder if one of the reasons this is especially salient for me is because I was 38 when I had my one and only kid. Friends were my life for a really long time. And I have one kid. I'm not expecting at the end of my life for there to be this giant, I, I come from a very tiny family to begin with, without a whole lot of aunts and uncles. And you know, at this point, I have no aunts and uncles. And well, that's more complicated, but I have an aunt who's like in an institution who I'll probably write about at some point. But and so you know, I, my friends are part of my aging plan. I, I think about this a lot. And I thought about it during COVID because, as you probably did too, because it became very clear, almost painfully clear, who you were bothering to keep in touch with and who suddenly you were not in touch with. It was, and also a third category, perhaps, people who would show up in your inbox or in your texts who you thought, you know, I don't want to be in touch with this person right now. There was also a kind of maybe during like June or July, that first summer, when it had just been too long and we were all going crazy and we needed to see other people. And we were trying to be good, but we were fudging it slightly. We were seeing people outdoors and sometimes saying, winking and saying, oh, come in the house, I don't have COVID and use the bathroom and stand with me in the kitchen. You know, And then you were making a mental list, like who would I allow to kill me? You know, which of my friends, if this goes south, you know, which ones do I love so much that it was worth it to have the, to have them in my kitchen, you know, or maybe that's just me. But I mean, I definitely thought about it that way. I thought the best thing you wrote, I mean, something that stopped, I mean, it took my breath away when you wrote that there's this, it's at once very simple, but also so profound that it's the one relationship that involves mutuality. Whereas like I am, I could be passively someone's cousin for the rest of my life and never see them. 
I can, I can be madly in love with somebody and it can be unrequited. I can be someone's, you know, daughter or parent and never talk to them. But if you're someone's friend, it's not in your head and it's, it's active. Even if somebody vanishes for a while, it does feel like it, it, you know, you can pick it up. It's just different. It's different. And I loved that you just, it was such a simple, elegant, perfect way of, that there's a transitive property involved. I, I loved that. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it, it is. It's the only relationship that requires constant sustaining of the mutuality. Yep. And it's a very equal relationship. But it's also one that has evolved over time, I think, although who knows what friendships were like in the day. You know, you, you, I think particularly of Jesus' relationship with John, the beloved, where you have at the center of the Gospels this really beautiful relationship that is, I mean, some people say it, it's not, it's not, it's not certainly portrayed as sexual in any way or as romantic in any way. It is just the disciple Jesus loved. And, and I always found that really striking because there was one of them that he, 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 even he, the person who was supposed to exemplify universal unconditional love for anyone, had a partiality to one person. It's it's also a it, it's 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 a it, it's it's more manageable. I can't love the whole world. No. Forgive me, I can't. I just I'm repelled by it most a lot of the time. Of course. And and romantic love always has to be. It's 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 a it's a strange thing, especially heterosexuals. It's a a real meeting of two very different worlds that chart a journey, creating life or at least having the potential to do that. Friendship. Not, not as, not as much. And I'm always, and I was struck always when I thought again about one of the most important things that that the Gospels say, which is, "Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends." Yes. And I'm like, wow, not humanity, not the world, not for a principle, but his friends. And and in 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 reading the Gospels that way, you also see, for example, that. The most important miracle that Jesus ever performed, which was the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which led to his crucifixion in the gospel story, was because his best friends, Martha and Mary, were Lazarus's brother. And they asked him to come and told him that their brother was sick and he got there too late. And they said to him, he's dead because of you. You didn't come. You abandoned us. And the story says Jesus, Jesus groaned, he sighed, it, 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 he just groaned inside of the pain that he had inflicted. And, and then he, he went ahead and rose Lazarus from the dead, which set off the chain of events which led to his crucifixion. So he did die for his friends in a strange way. He really did. And the friends were also both women and men, which was also fascinating about Jesus is that Martha and Mary were total equals to him in his life. And that was very rare. You don't see stories like that. So for me, friendship is a spiritual thing that really goes back to my understanding of who Jesus really was and how wonderful it would have been. I mean, impossible to be to believe it's be his friend. But there are, you, sorry, yeah, go on. Uh, no, there are three things. I mean, you're saying so many things. I should actually be scribbling. I mean, in terms of the spiritual aspect, you're choosing it. I mean, it is something that you choose. You cho these are people you choose to sacrifice for. They are not because you are genetically, psychotically in love with them, or 
because you are legally bound to them. And so the idea that it is a sacrifice that you willingly make is beautiful. It is inherently beautiful. It's, It's a function of freedom. Right. That's just it. It is the one, it's a relationship that we freely opt into and we, and we say it over and over again. I choose you. I choose you. And I think that really matters. I am thinking also about the fact that, yes, he had, he had the, this love for other men. And you said, and it's not sexual. And I, I was just talking to, I was on a panel with a psychologist who was talking about this very thing, that it was Freud and Kraft Ebbing who sort of unfortunately then they implied i can't remember exactly how she framed this but the bottom line was that it became harder post void for men to be friends with one another there was a presumption of some kind of gay undercurrent and you know so the cliche example of like lincoln and you know his best friend sleeping in the same bed you know that we men don't have an easily recruitable vocabulary for friendship in the same way anymore they can't be friends with one another in that quite that same way or be as expressive. It's it's painful to think about. It's it's painful to contemplate what what got lost there. Yeah, um, especially yeah. the, especially for men actually, because friendship today seems to come more easily to women. At least when women are together as friends, they share a lot. They they talk about stuff. They they're almost sort of face to face. They talk about their lives. That men. In general, and this is not true, I think it's not true of gay men, actually, but it is true of a lot of men, is that they can be friends as long as they're doing something else at the same time. The cliche is true. We're just playing golf. Right. We're playing golf. We are not just having friendships. We are, we are, of course, it's about friendship. And, but they have to have some alibi, as it were. To to be with another man as a as a friend. So Jonathan Heights, who I love, that's yeah, yeah, Jonathan Haidt, who I love and adore. I don't mean to cut you off. It's just to speak no. directly to it. I, I I mean Jonathan is brilliant. You've had him. You've discussed. You've had him on your show. He's um <laughs> right after that story came out. I was at a dinner party and he was there and he said, "How many men reacted?" Did you get a lot of feedback from men? He was, he said without saying that it was kind of a chick story, you know, and he was by no means the only one. And I thought that is such a shame. It shouldn't be. I mean, there's nothing like about this that is inherently, you know, female. Female? No. No. The topic of friendship and maybe the ways that I discussed it, except for that, I, I, I don't understand why that would be. One thing I would say to you that you said earlier, though, you said that it's between equals. I do think that actually one of the vexing and sort of things about friendship, one of the complexities that comes up is that often it's it's often the subtle inequalities in friendship that really start to catch up over time with in, in certain pairings, right? And you've seen this time and time again where you will discover that your friendship is predicated on a certain power balance or imbalance. And that's always very hard. When suddenly somebody just pulls ahead professionally or someone gets married early and everyone else is not married or someone's straggling. Or years ago when I was at New York Magazine, you will appreciate this. This is a very New York Magazine kind of story, but I pitched it. I did. I was seated next to a doctor who said to me that he found his patients who got bariatric surgery where they they lost weight 
you know, suddenly due to a surgical procedure. He found them so fascinating that a lot of the women were suddenly divorced, not because they were suddenly gorgeous and really badly wanted to sow their oats, but because their husbands couldn't tolerate suddenly having women who looked appreciably better. And there is some version of it, those things are naturally occurring in friends all the time, or your status shifts or things like that. So I think to me, that was one of the most interesting and vexing and complicated things. To yeah, think it's Gore, it's Gore, was it? Yes. You quoted yes. Gore Vidal in your essay, and he says, when something good happens to a friend, something in me dies a little. Yep. And something like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, that's basically it. And uh, I think that. And you're right. Yeah. And also, he then had a corollary to that, which is, it's not enough for me to succeed. My friend must fail. I mean, that's, yeah. that may be, I don't know if that's unique to Gore Vidal, but. I, I, well, he, he wasn't, he was a somewhat dyspeptic. <laughs> and, a a misanthropic guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but I. I, I Honest, I, though. Well, I was just going to say. But maybe if people, if friends believe that their other friends are becoming too successful or too complacent or too happy, it's hard to tolerate other people's happiness. You know, I mean, that can be a really... Well, did, yeah. did that happen to you? Because you, 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 you got Pulitzers and awards and, and you became a very famous and celebrated writer. Did the people that were along with you for the ride suddenly peel away or, or did you lose friends through success? I... I think I, I I wasn't ever a wonderkind. I sort of I, I achieved on schedule. I think I got my passport stamped at the right moment each time. So I mean, I, I, not that I was aware of, but I am so neurotic and so melancholic anyway that I, I'm not the kind of person who sits around and goes, "Damn, that was great! I'm going to smoke a cigar because I'm fabulous." You know, like I I, I mean, how no, I know that too. But it wouldn't be it wouldn't be it wouldn't be coming from you. You could. It would be coming from them. Their insecurities or right. jealousies. Do right, you right. find that friendship within your profession, as opposed to completely random, as it were, would be more susceptible to things like envy and jealousy yes. because you're in the same industry. Yes, and 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 I think Aristotle has written about this. Right, it's the almostness of of achieving something. If somebody achieve something spectacular and you don't, and you're in the same field, there's this unavoidable sense. I think if you're pretty good, like, why couldn't this have been me? How, how come I didn't do it that way? I, I am not at all envious of my friend who is an ER doctor at Maimonides. She's amazing. I brag about my friend who is an ER doctor at Maimonides. When she was at peak COVID, when she diagnosed the first case at Maimonides Hospital, I told everyone I knew because that reflected really well on me. That made me seem so cool. If I had been another doctor, how would I have felt about my friend Grace being so spectacular? I don't know. You know, she figured out, I mean, it was like a really, the, the patient wasn't presenting in a traditional way and it was really impressive that she caught it. So, you know, I, I talk about one moment of envy that I had professionally and it was brief and it was because my friend Bob is so utterly gracious that like it, it it didn't overwhelm me but I have always don't ask me why I mean I resisted going to the New York Times I left the New York Times op-ed page because I got sick of it you know I'm not like fetish fetishistically attached to prestigious things but 
I always really wanted to be on Oprah. I thought it would be really cool to be on Oprah. And my friend Bob wrote a book and it was an Oprah book. And I was like, oh, that is so great, Bob. And I really wanted to die. I so wanted to be on Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, why are you on Oprah? Like, I'm the one who writes all the stories about feelings. I'm like, I've been the feelings writer for 20 years. I mean, yes, I also write about politics a lot. But I was so, and it, I got over it really fast. You know, I mean, and he made it easy because he's extremely modest by nature. This is my friend Bob Colker, who wrote a really terrific book. I mean, it deserved to be on Oprah, you know. But I don't, I have, this is the thing. Would you tell a friend that you were envious of them? It's really hard to, it's a very hard thing to say to a friend, I envy you. I think you can, I think you can preface it a little by saying, I'm not proud of this fact, but oh, since good. friendship is often about honesty, mutual honesty, I think sometimes you could, you could say that. I, I have found that my closest friends are really not connected to my work, whether they are one of my oldest friends from 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 high school, whom I'm still in touch with and talk to and, and visit every time I'm in England, to my bestie here who plays jazz piano, to to friends of mine that are just not in the elite zone necessarily, but whom I love because I've also been with them for a long time. I do think that friendship exists and really does need to exist over a period of time and therefore requires active involvement to keep it going sometimes just the phone calls and then there are other friends with whom your connection like my friend rupert or my friend david who 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 traveled with me all across america back in 1985 and whom i still visit i stay when i'm in london they it's almost as if i don't have to nurture them every time partly because i'm physically distant but when i meet them again when i see them again it's like we go right back to where we were, as if nothing has really happened, that we're still the same people underneath. And that gives me incredible sustenance in my life. It, it's it's because uh, I also remember when I when I became uh, super whatever hot, as it were, in my 20s, for God's sake, that my friends, mainly I was terrified and I was working because I was I knew I was completely out of my depth. And I, I just they were like, you don't care about us anymore, do you? You you've left us, you're in some other zone. And it really wounded me. You know, you've just anticipated and, my question, how everybody reacted mm, to you when you were 27 and the new mm, editor of the New Republic and on Charlie Rose. Mm, I mean, 27-year-olds mm, are still working really shitty jobs. They're, they're, if they're yeah. not getting coffee, they're doing something very close to it. At 27, I was mm. hardly killing it. I wasn't far from a real. Well, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I was not killing it. I mean, I'm blessed with people who were able to not have that affect their friendship with me. It's, it's, I think it's actually harder in relationships where a certain amount of overshadowing can happen because you always show up. For example, I know a friend of mine who, who, whose wife divorced him on the grounds that she just couldn't go to another dinner party with him where she was talked over. And that's, I can, un I understand that entirely, but friendship shouldn't be like that. What do you think is the essential quality? What do you absolutely need to have a friendship to what, what, what thing do you have to have in common? I think a couple of things. I mean, first of all, you were talking about the unsustainability of romantic love, but I think that 
initial, um, oh, me too, that identification, that elation of just you're discovering that your sensibilities are, are, are so beautifully aligned. It's, it's kind of all of the pleasure. It's the pleasures of romantic love without any of the anxiety in some ways. And none of the sex. And okay, so there's none of that. But I, I think that that's one, having some kind of similar sensibility as you're moving through the world together feels important. But I think also one thing, if I think about my friends, who I love the most, they are demonstrative. They actually do things that spouses should do. They tell you how much they love you. And they tell, I mean, they actually, and they say, I'm so proud of you. And I, I they, they experience your accomplishments and your achievements as if they were your family, the way you wish your family would, you know, in some ways. I think that it, there was something that Philip Roth's friend, Ben Taylor, Benjamin Taylor, said to me about Philip Roth. And it's very funny to think of Philip Roth as being a person who could do this for another person. You think of him as being ulcerated edges, right? But Ben Taylor said, you know, what I loved about Philip is that he gave me the feelings that I couldn't give myself and that he made me believe that my finest self was my real self, was my true self. And I mean, ben, ben Taylor is a lovely writer. There's a reason that that memoir really spoke to me and to, I think, a number of others. That's right. I think that that, so that there's a phrase that... There's a phrase that Oakshot uses, which is that a definition of friendship is the lack of any desire whatsoever to change the other person. Oh, God, that's so great. That's so <laughs> great. It's it's about total acceptance of the other. And and sometimes that means that you love them for their very faults. That you 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 understand that this is who they are and you love them unconditionally. Even though they drive you crazy, it's part of you loves the fact they drive you crazy. Well that's just... and even though they're not perfect, but yeah, that total acceptance is and also the lack of any transactional nature. And this is the other interesting thing because you can think of a relationship, and Aristotle goes into this at one point, that, oh, you give me that, and I'll give you this. Well, great. that's the third great tier, relationship, right? But that's it's... the third tier for Aristotle. That's not. <laughs> yes, that's right. it's not. But Aristotle, too, says you, you have to be friends. You can only be friends with someone who is as virtuous as you are. In other words, it, it only really reaches its apogee when the two friends are good people doing good things with one another. And the moderns sort of said, nah. I mean, Montaigne especially. Yeah. Nah. Meh. It's he's when he was asked, and this is another theme that's worth it. The great essays on friendship almost all come after someone's friend has died. Especially young. It is it is as if you never appreciate it till it goes away. And then you are in extraordinary grief. And you, you, and you realize you didn't take it as seriously as you should have. Now, that is fascinating because, of course, what I wrote was called It's Your Friends Who Break Your Heart. And mm. what I was writing about was, again, I was thinking about all the friends that, friendships that used to be in my life that are no longer and how much they feel like failures and what kinds of pieces of myself I feel like they walked off with. And it is true. And I, I, I'm forgetting the name of the critic who had said this, 
But she was right that when friendship is sort of operating well, it's, it's not the plot. It's humming along quietly. It's when it goes away that it becomes the plot. So if someone dies, if Montaigne loses Dubotie or however you pronounce his name, I mean, th that is exactly it. That is how these, that's what made me start thinking about this. I was doing a midlife inventory and thinking about all the people I missed and all the people that I wanted very much to hold on to and not to let go. But I, I think you are right. The one thing I would say about the kind of mutual respect and love and acceptance, you there's that on the one hand, and then there is on the other hand, the fact that we are always gossiping about our friends, that we are always forever talking about them and thinking about them, and you become an expert in their craziness and their neuroses. And I'm trying to think about how to balance th those two things because they are both true. And I don't think I would ever want to sit around and listen to what my friends said about me, not just because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able to tolerate whatever hurtful things got said, but because I would also know on some level that gossip is a form of currency and it didn't, it wouldn't necessarily matter that this is what people do. We talk about other people and it doesn't necessarily mean that all the devastating things that they are saying about you are consequential in any larger sense. They're still going to be there for you. If you're in the hospital, they're still going to be there when you wake up. You know. Can you be friends with someone who has a radically different politics, for example? Because that's something that has definitely been become challenging for people in the last decade or so, as we've become more politics has entered more of our personal lives and and kind of toxified some relationships, definitely in the families, particularly where you can't really stop. But, and I, I, I like to think that I have friends, of, I'm friends of people who have radically different views than me. And I think it's true. However, my best friends are always actually not that far away from me. They're able to tell me you've gone completely bonkers on this one or, but they they somehow share very similar values at some level. And so I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds of this. I, I mean, I'm going to, for example, I'm doing a podcast soon with Peter Staley, who was one of the first members of ACT UP, who's a, a real lefty. I mean, a really angry activist kind of leftist. And to some extent, we just tease each other right now at this point about our, our various politics. But again, he's, he's not my closest friend. He's just a friend I've had for a long time. Right. And I kind of enjoy those sparring matches sometimes when we get together, as long as we know that we can always have dinner or talk about something else. How about you? Do you have friends who have? Totally, I do. And, and, I, and I can give a really interesting example of late, which is I've got a friend who's awfully bright. I mean, she's so smart. She's, she's smarter than I am. And she, she's gone down a vaccine rabbit hole. She's really, she's become a very, she's become a, a serious vaccine skeptic. And, but she's made it easy because, I mean, sometimes she, when she was first falling down this rabbit hole, she brought it up a little bit more than I was comfortable with. But then eventually she said that, I know, I know you don't believe this. I know, and we're not going to discuss this. And I think that some of it is like what you decide to privilege in your conversation. And if you decide that you're going to sit there and rub each other's fur the wrong way or not, you have a choice in these matters. 
you know, David Carr, when he introduced me to his wife years ago when he was at New York Magazine, she had started her career working for, oh God, I'm going to forget the name of the Senator Boschowitz in Minnesota. He was a Republican. And David said, oh yeah, I didn't know that Jill didn't give a shit about poor people until maybe we three or four months into our relationship, you know, like in his Minnesota <laughs> accent, which I just did a terrible job imitating. I'm usually good at it, but I'm, whatever, I'm not hearing it today. Anyway. But he's a like, hard one, David Carr. He is a hard one, although he's got that. He, a hard one to mimic in any way. Oh, he, he was so unique. He I mean, was. Oh, how do you sum up him? Oh, well, I, I, yes. And, you know, when he died, it was uh, we all struggled because it, he was very hard to recreate. Yeah, he was kind of sui generis. He was who he was. But he he married someone with different politics. And I think you just have agreements about what you talk about. It. This is actually an interesting segue into the story I wrote about the McIlvains. So the very first story I wrote for The Atlantic was a 9-11 story. Jeff said, do you have any stories to write about 9-11? We're looking for a good one, like a human one. And I said, weirdly, I do. And I thought that my story was going to be about a marriage. I didn't think it was going to be involved the number of moving pieces that it did. The way I originally conceived it was that it was going to be about Helen McIlvain and Bob McIlvain senior, who lost their son, Bobby, on 9-11. He was my brother's roommate, both at college and in New York City. So it had been eight years that the two of them had been living together. And on 9-11, he left the apartment and he never comes home and he's 26 years old. And his father chooses a conspiracy theory, ultimately, as a way of explaining 9-11. And his mother is indifferent to this and, in fact, tells me that she would walk across the street and around the corner. No, further. She said she would go across the United States not to learn some of the things that her husband is learning about and not to read some of the things he's reading, not to think about some of the things that he's thinking. They're still married. And the question is, so, I mean, forget about like remaining friends with someone who has different politics from your own. These people lost a son and they are still married when one believes that the government did this and the other couldn't care less and doesn't ever want to think about 9-11, has zero interest, whereas Bob wakes up every morning and it's like it's September 12th. He just, that's what he thinks about. And how do they do that? How do they remain married? And on some level, it's actually pretty simple. They are the only two people who know what it is like or what it was like to have loved this boy so much for 26 years and to have lost him. And nothing else can knock that out of the way. That remains front and center. The fact that they lost this beautiful boy who they loved so, so very much and that they knew him so well. And who else can share that common frame of reference, right? So my friend who has gone down some vaccine rabbit hole, I've got so many years of like history with her. We've done so many things together. She's seen me through so many rotten spells. She's, you know, I, I've seen her through, you know, many rotten stretches. We, we've exalted in each other's successes. We know each other's children. We know each other's spouses. We, we know each other's shit, you know, like, so am I really going to let, like, I, I, no, I'm not. I can't. There's too much, there's just too much else to love. You know, the one thing that has, for me, ended a friendship is 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 meth. Oof! When someone has become 
addicted to meth and therefore they're honestly no longer there it's not them anymore this drug takes away their soul and their mind and they learn to lie to you all the time even when you're trying to help them and i've just learned from brutal experience that after a while you cannot do anything you have to walk away even though every part of you wants to save them you can't and that is the one thing that has killed a good deep friendship for me and and it's a horrible thing to experience may i i may i say something about that yeah did, sure. you, did you know mark glaze yes did you i did very very well did you know he was my roommate? I love that man. Did you know we lived together no. for two years? No. In the East Village. I had no idea. I love Mark. He was, he, he, he I, I'm, I, yeah, that, that was, the loss of him was a pretty hideous gut punch. So, you know, we mm. lost him in some Especially sense. the way he, way he died. Well, the way he died, except for that he felt himself he felt that he was losing himself to meth and to all these other drugs too, I think, yeah. right? I mean, I think he felt yeah. that he just had, he'd become unhelmed, you know, that it, some, his own self had deserted himself, you know, had, had, had yeah. gone somewhere. And I know he struggled with meth. I don't know where he was in his journey at that point, but we, it's not just that you lost whoever this friend was to meth, that friend probably thought that he was losing himself to meth too. As I think we saw with Mark eventually dying by suicide. I mean, I think that it's just when you become unrecognizable to yourself, when you are estranged from who you are and can't recapture that, I think it's tragic. And I'm so sorry. I don't know who this other friend was and if they're still with us, but it's a precarious life that it, that drug is, it's even more vicious than opioids. It's worse. I, it is. It, it, I've never seen, you know, I'm generally a libertarian on these matters. And, and, you and but, me both. Uh, that stuff, that stuff, I'm sorry, but it, 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 there's something evil about it. Yep. And the other, yeah, and sometimes when you lose someone, I mean, my, the, my own book about friendship, my own essays about friendship came from losing m one of my closest friends. And again, with, with Patrick, we, we had a, a we both had intuitive friendship in other words we were both catholic gay boys rather traditional very intellectually interested out in in at, at early on in our lives for, for our generation and we both also became positive at the same time and he unfortunately had had hiv much longer than i had at that time and he only found out when he got aids but being with someone as they die, an agonizing death, is a particularly brutal, brutalizing experience because you also see you also see in your friend yourself. And but there are some things that a friend can do in those circumstances that a lover can't. Like what? I was able, I was able to talk to him about death in a way that someone who was trying to support him. <laughs> intimately would be have a hard time talking to him about just holding him and asking him 
how he thinks about that and what 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 he, what is in his head and mind and soul about it. And uh, it's similarly, yeah, the friendship kind of can pierce, can be on, more honest than a romantic relationship or an intimate relationship because that's your that's your job in a way as a friend, not to to tell the truth as 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 honestly as you can and to listen to someone's experience. Listening is incredibly important and sometimes jumping in and saving them. Can you tell me about the experience of finding that letter that he wrote to you? <sighs> that killed me. Yeah. And it made me think of the McIlvain story too, because the second there's this written testimony, you're so desperate, you're so hungry for more of it. And it feels, it's like, and someone's speaking from beyond, right? From yeah. the dead talking to I, yeah, I, I'm. I have a hard time talking about it. To be honest with you, even now, even though it's a long time later, but the thing I most think about is what would he be saying about this now? What would he have thought about that? How would he have reacted to that piece of news? In a way that, with Hitchens, I'm always thinking. Oh, if only he were here to deal with Trump and these crazy woke people, he would just be delicious. And now there's a friend who couldn't be a more emphatic atheist who befriended me, this Catholic, and he constantly taunted me about it. And at some point I was like, oh, come on. I, I didn't want, again, I didn't want him to, I didn't, if he'd suddenly converted to Catholicism, I would have been completely at sea. I wouldn't have known what to do. And of course, I didn't want him to. I didn't want him to. I, I just wanted him to be him because that was, you know, that's again, the total acceptance of someone, the desire not to change them, just to be with them. Well, would you that's have been nearly as sexy to him if you had been an atheist like him? No way. No well, way. I was not attracted to him in the No, I don't mean that. Sexy is not something I would attribute to him. Although no, no, he no. constantly. I, you have been a sexy I know, I know. I meant as a choice. I meant as a friend. No, I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know what you're saying. I'm just joking because oh, yeah. he was constantly flirt I know. ridiculously with me I and kissed me on the lips I and all know. this stuff. And I was like, pretending you're gay. I know you think it's fabulous, but I, I, you know it's not true. Yeah. And the other thing that happens, I think, is, is some people. You know, there's some people change and something happens and you think, ah, did our, do I really respect that? I mean, here's, here's the thing, fame, fame with people seeking fame. And first of all, it's, for, any, for anyone listening, it's hugely overrated. <laughs> do not buy here's a, I remember once I was, I was, in, this is after all, I became flavor of the month or whatever. And I was out with a friend at a club and this dude came up to me and said, are you Andrew Sullivan? And my friend whisked me away and said, not tonight, he's not. Oh, <laughs> took, me, took me away. That and, is awesome. <laughs> and I was like, thank God for Robert. And, you know, we're still in touch. We're still in touch. We, we see each other all the time. I have like about eight friends from priests to, uh, to, to marketing experts, to a jazz piano player, to a to home. I mean, all sorts of things. And I think gayness actually is really good for that because first of all we're cast outside somewhat socially of a regular society so you have your own and that creates friendships that are rooted in something other than who you might meet at work who you might meet professionally who you went to school with etc cetera, etc cetera. all the things that normally carve out the bounds of, of friendship 
And <laughs> there's also a way in which you need someone to unload, you know, your your anxieties and your experiences. I mean, you have some meet somebody, have some terrible tryst. Who do you want to talk to about it? Your friends. You don't want to talk to your mother about it. You don't want to talk to your family. <laughs> you just want to talk to your friend who might have had a similar experience and you will laugh about it. That's the other thing that I think friendship is all about. It's about mutual laughter. And you're both, you're not looking at each other like face to face. You're both looking ahead together in the same direction and occasionally looking to each other and, and, and whispering something or making some remark, but you will, you're both kind of in the same place. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Moving side by side through the world. I 100% do. And I was just thinking about that. Yes, that you have that horizontal identity thing that Andrew Solomon talked about, right? Where yes. you're going to meet more. I, I envy that kind of diversity, all the flora and fauna in your world, because there is a relentless sameness in mine. I must say and I don't know, is it because I'm straight and hetero and live in Park Slope and I have my kid at the school? And, the, you know, I mean, you can come up with a bunch of, you know, or but that I'm, you know, ultimately from Westchester. I mean, who knows, you know, but like that everything was overdetermined. I, I'm interested in something that you said where I, I thought I heard two different things. First, you say, first, you're saying that some of your friends, when you became super, you know, you became Washington's favorite wonderkind that you, your friends were grousing that you had no more time for them. But then you were also saying that you didn't feel like they experienced much envy because you had this kind of diversified, were these at different points in time? Did I miss something? Yeah, no, I, it, was, it was at the very beginning where they interpreted my withdrawal from everything ah. as a rejection because I was working. I remember, I remember them literally what we used to call gay napping me, which was like, one weekend, they're just like, well, we're doing it. We're taking you out to the beach for the weekend. Right. Screw you. Right. We're gonna in so they didn't give up on me. Yeah. And because I'm actually I hated I hated the attention, to be perfectly honest with you. I I I, I just I I, I I hated as a human being walking into any space where people already knew a whole bunch of stuff about me and all of what they had previous it just it prevents spontaneous human interaction as equals and so i once i realized that i sort of took myself i much further off tv because tv is the real killer or i looked at my old friend addison cooper and over the years and just felt god am i happy i'm not there i'm not in that situation because it becomes impossible to meet anybody or to just be among people without being the center of attention. And especially for a writer, when you want to be able to observe, you want to be able to be around people and listen and see and not be the story. And, and so that was, that was a real problem. But I'm happy to say that almost all my friends stuck with me. They did. They absolutely did. They were there with me all the way through. And, and I'm still very close with all of them. It's, it's, and you talked a little bit about mortality about this, but that's how I want to grow old with my friends. And we always joke about sitting in our rocking chairs. Yeah. <laughs> but I've why no, not? Well, why I, not? I have no choice in this matter. Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know when I'm going to die, but my husband is 14 years older than I am. So hopefully, if we die in the right order, so that my kid still has me, you know, it's my friends who are going to keep me airborne, right? I mean, this is, uh, they are totally a part of my aging plan. And, you know, it's a funny thing that all the social scientists who look at how we feel in real time as we're doing things, what they will find is that we are happiest when we are in the company of our friends, not our kids, 
not our parents, not our spouses. It's our friends. It's always, if somebody is saying that, you know, if you get anybody to isolate the best part of their day, you know, that will be what it was. They will have been in the company of their friends. And it's an interesting thing, but maybe not an accident that there are no institutions supporting friendship, right? It's, it's, it's the one, and maybe that's not an irony so much as a result of. If there were, we would not delight in friends in the same way if we knew we were legally bound to them or if we knew, you know, I, I, Amina Tussu and Anne Friedman in their book, Big Friendship, they talk about going to see a therapist together. Because I think they thought they were in this for the long haul. And so they wanted to do that as friends. And when I mentioned this to Laura Carsonson, who thinks about friendship and runs the Longevity Center at Stanford, so she's thinking about friends in the long haul, the things you and I are talking about. She said, that's crazy. <laughs> like, I wouldn't do that. You know, I mean, she's, it was interesting to hear her say that, you know, that, that to her, that's not what friendship is about. Is there a difference in your experience between a friendship, in your case, with a woman and a friendship with a man? Does, is, the, is, there, is there any conflict there with possible, you know, everyone, if, you, if you're out with another male, another man, not your husband, is there, do you feel that sometimes sexual attraction, romantic options are an impediment, or do you think you can get you can get over that pretty quickly and 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 continue forward. I, I think the when Harry met Sally tension, you know, question is a little overrated. I think cross gender friendships are actually divine, because here's the thing: if you consider that the things that sort of stress a friendship the most are, let's say, asymmetries in, in like how much you disclose, you know. I'm feeling like I'm always being very vulnerable with this friend and this friend is never showing me any leg. You know, let's say that's that's a common complaint. Another complaint would be envy, let's say. Those are much less apt to happen across genders because, and betrayals also, right? Like romantic betrayals. If I'm out, if I'm straight, if I'm hetero and I'm out with my male friend, I'm not, there's no fear I'm going to go steal their wife, right? Off the table if I'm straight. Professionally, we're not going to be competing as much because you want to know what? I think that whatever the strides are that women have made, there's still different expectations. You know, if the guy's more successful, it's okay. I mean, that's, that's, it's an, a very uncomfortable, weird thing to say, but it's just not going to be as threatening, you know, although, you know what? So then you have to ask it the other way around. If you're more successful as a woman than a guy, I don't know how that would work out, but maybe not so bad, but it still might not be as threatening, right? It's not another guy besting you. It's a woman. I don't know. Maybe it's not as tense. I can't. But so let's see. So money, money could be a problem. Money. If someone is much wealthier than you are. Although I will say this: I, one of my best friends in the world has in unfathomable amounts of money. It just we didn't meet through that, but that's he does. But he's managed to like just throw that money at all his friends in the sense of everyone can come join him in his beach house. Everyone can come with him on his plane to go to Burning Man. Everyone can, he, he's, he's, he delights in it. And in fact, he long, I mean, he, he's responsible for getting me to Burning Man twice. I think purely to find me a source of continual amusement because he's clueless about these things. I, and he just likes to, to, to stir things up and to put me in weird, 
but I have never ever believed it was anything but benign. Oh, I mean, but, that sounds he loved delightful. watching me have to go through that experience. Yeah, it is delightful. I mean, so where are um, the strains in your friend? Like, without naming a name, I mean, can you identify what would have been the hardest? What would have been the biggest tension tension in one of your friendships? Because it sounds like you were very expansive. It sounds, and you were fortunate in that you succeeded so early. You weren't going to be a particularly envious friend. It didn't matter. You, you did what you needed. You know, it, yeah. Some things were removed from the equation. As I said, I think I think drugs. Sometimes, you know, the vast majority of friendships just peter out through lack of attention. Yep. So there are people that I was close to. I'm sure in my 30s that I'm no longer. As connected to some, some, some that you know, work takes over people's lives, weddings and children. You know that is another huge. I think a lot of I think a lot of men, especially, lose touch with each other during the family stuff, and women even. Well, women can always be friends around that question. You know, how do I the kids and all that? Yep. Stuff. There's a there's an obvious commonality there. Yep. But you, I've seen and married couples who don't have kids, gay couples who just disappear. They just they go nest. Yep. And you're aware every time that you're interrupting that nest, you're interrupting it, and and they've just decided that that's where they're going to place all their energies. And I I, I totally respect that. So those sort of things have have have, have come up. I, I I think you either have a good spidey sense of whom you love and who you get along with, and the goal is to clear possible interventions into that if you can but again i agree with you it, it requires effort it's not something that just happens by itself no no and i i've been guilty of neglect in that way i mean i it will suddenly be pointed out to me that if i look in my inbox the, you know the last nine emails were initiated on the other side of the net and i can go long stretches taking that stuff for granted because I'm such a workaholic and because I'm such a monomaniac. Th that is, I think, my, if there were anything I could change about myself. But of course, it's not just with friends. It's everything. I mean, if you're that way, you know, you're oblivious to a lot of things. So that, I mean, I would certainly. The thing I'm most afraid of is my friends taking flack because of me. Oh, how so? Well, that I'm constantly getting flack and they, and they will have to feel themselves having to defend me in ways sometimes like he's no you're making him out to be something he's not i don't want to put them in that position so i always tell all my friends you have complete deniability that you even know me if you need to get out of one of those conversations do not ever defend me you are not a party of this you are a free person and you do not have to defend anything i've done to anyone else if you have an issue talk to me about it but please i hate the idea i'd be put other people in the line of fire when really they they deserve to be and i i really feel bad about that because i you know i love my friends are gay i'm not exactly the most popular homo around i mean i do have lots of people who, but a lot of people have a lot of very hostile and i have to say somewhat uninformed ideas about me and i hate the idea that my friends would be in any way tarnished in in that respect so that's 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 another another factor in it but i and I love the I love the friendships that I've had since childhood. They're still there, and, uh, and do people you do haven't that? changed. And do you? I mean, are you are you yeah. a good reacher outer? I am actually. Yeah. I mean, like if I'm going back to home, I will make sure one, two, three, four, five people I see. And if I don't, 
if I don't have time or something, I will let them know that I'll see them next time or mm -hmm. whatever. So it, the, 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 otherwise you can't swan in and out of a whole country and leave all your old school friends behind. And some of them really turn out to be great. I mean, like <laughs> the leader of the Labour Party, I just knew as, as a 10 year old. What? So I'm, I've told this before, it's too boring, but I, but Keir Starmer is now leading Labour Party, might be the next prime minister. We went to the same high school together for five years and knew each other very, very well and Crazy. fought every day on the bus. And, and I know, and he also, by the way, still hangs out with his old buddies from school. So he's, He's always available for a beer or a bunch of us get together and hang out with him. And we don't talk politics at all. Right. It is just our friends and our, 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 our misfortunes or our fortunes and all the rest of it. But, and I just couldn't disagree with him more about God knows how much stuff, but I love him as a human being. Right. And the glue that holds you together is and made of different stuff. I mean, it's made of totally different stuff. Yeah. I would love to believe that your friends are a cheerfully perverse enough lot to take all kinds of flack on your behalf at dinner parties and enjoy it, that they enjoy coming to you. I don't want them to. I really, um, I don't want well, them to. I, I really, well, I, just, I do not feel worthy of their expenditure of time and effort. But Jennifer, this has been, it's, it's flown by. We've just been chatting about I know. life. Really. <laughs> I, know, um, I, know. I wasn't expecting this and, at but all. It's, like expecting what me to talk just this about this so in we friendship? Gonna, we, we were going to just kibitz. We were just going to talk. You know, I mean, yeah. it's been beautiful. It's been so nice. Well, thank you. It's, it's been lovely to to properly meet you. Uh, actually, um, you know how it's funny. You also know when you meet people that you could be friends with them. I feel that way about meeting you. I, I was just, um, just going to say that. I mean, so let's let's do that. Let's sometime. We'll stay in touch. I, yes, I would be wonderful. And you yeah. and I are probably people who have um, busy lives, but would want to find one way. I said this to Andrew Solomon when I last saw him. He wrote me this really nice note after my friendship piece. And he said, you know, we're not like best friends or anything, but I feel like we can see each other a couple of times a year, right? We can figure that out. <laughs> and I thought, I love you for saying that. It's like, it puts exactly the right borders around it and it's not stressful. But it means it, you are someone I want to have an ongoing kind of dialogue with in my life. And we've already, we're old. We already have calcified structures in our lives and people that we're <laughs> obligated to and kids and blah, blah, blah. But yes, can we try that? And I would say the same thing. I would love to do it. Yes. You know, Absolutely. Like, you, you get to Washington very often? Well, now, yeah, the mothership, the Atlantic. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so you're living in D.C. I'm not. No, no, no. I'm living in. I'm, oh. I'm a cliche. Remember Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, Park Slope. Yes, Sorry. Yes. yes. Park oh, forgive Slope. me. I, I briefly. It's OK. Just briefly. Just when you just. I'm also happen. lucky in. I'm lucky to live in this little town too, half the year for, for five months a year because I know people here and only from here. Yeah. Since my 20s. And they and, and here I'm always still that just the, 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 the loser that showed up in my 20s. And, and and that's a bond, you know, you, and. and Having that bond your whole life, being able to look at one another and see well, what happens. You look at him, you say, shit, he's gotten old. And then you realize, well, I have too much. Like, why am I in denial? But um, you've grown up together. But that's a lovely joy. It is. No, yeah. growing up with somebody. I mean, the idea that you're still really good friends with somebody that you fought with on the bus kind of makes my brain explode, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have any. Oh, what? Yeah. I'm lucky. lucky. I, I consider it a a good fortune yeah, jennifer thank you so much thank you for so coming much. uh thank you. i urge everyone to read jennifer's essays in the atlantic where she's now now based and her beautiful essay on friendship which she 
put out recently. I, I'm also mindful to the, the third section of Love Undetectable, my second book, which is all about friendship and all about my best friend who died. And I will second uh, that. And I can't wait. Uh, well, you tout it. Absolutely. It, 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 so beautiful. Well, it got it got a little siloed into the gay AIDS memoir thing. And although I'm not ashamed of that, I, I, I try to talk about from Aristotle onwards, what the meaning of friendship And, and anyway, it's, I, I found it so utterly relatable as a, you know, a hetero middle-aged lady. I mean, come on. No. Thank you. No. Thank you. Well, you're very sweet. And I want to tell you readers that the listeners, we have an amazing bunch of people. I can't believe the people who said yes to us. So wait and see. We have some fascinating people coming up on the show in the next few weeks. It's been lovely chatting. If you like this and you appreciate that we don't have any ads, we don't interrupt it, we give it to you all free, then return the compliment and subscribe. It doesn't, it's not that much and it would really help us keep this going. Thanks all. And I'll see you all next week on the Dishcast. Lots of love. Bye-bye.